And now I can't go back. Yeah. Because now I understand the extent of the challenge and the frameworks that I could use to solve, help solve part of this problem. Hi, welcome to the Building a Better Future podcast. Stories from climate tech founders. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Building a Better Future, stories from climate tech founders. Um, Over the course of this eight-week series, we are going to be chatting to founders from early-stage startups and understanding where their love for sustainability began, what led them to action and set up their own business, and what challenges they faced in those first few years as a founder. As always, I really hope that these stories are going to be relatable to any other founders out there who are on a similar journey. I hope they might be motivational if there's anyone out there considering taking the leap themselves and and setting up their own business. And I hope they'll be informative to anybody that's passionate about climate tech and just wants to hear about the cool things that people are working on. Uh, My name's Cherry. I'm the founder of Above and Beyond Recruitment. Um, Our business partners with climate tech startups and we help them to develop their employer brand and then grow and scale their product and engineering teams. Last week, uh, we kicked off our interview series with a fantastic conversation with Mark Corbett, the CEO and co-founder of a business called Thrust Carbon. Um, He talked us through his early experiences of entrepreneurship that he had at university, how some early failings really taught him a lot about building his resilience. Um, And he also talked about how the entire concept for his business came about at a hackathon that his uh, co-founder invited him to. And he said yes to completely on a whim. So really interesting story. Um, Urge you definitely, if you didn't catch it live, to go back and have a look. It's a link on my profile um, now. So go and have a look at that. But today, Today, we are joined by Louise Parlons Bentata. She is the CEO and co founder of a business called Blue Methane. Uh, launched about 18 months ago, Blue Methane are developing a pioneering technology to remove methane from water to prevent it from escaping into the atmosphere and then use this captured methane as a form of renewable energy. Louise has had a really interesting background in the world of retail and e commerce marketing. And along with her co founder, she joined into the Carbon 13 Venture Builder to develop their idea. So I'm really looking forward to hearing more about that experience. Louise, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Lovely to be here. I'd like to kick off. No, no worries. I'd like to kick off, like we always do, really, by going back to the beginning, if you're happy with that. Um, So can you kind of take me back to those early years of your life, kind of education, even pre-career, and kind of see if, if you can kind of identify if there were any early inklings of a passion for sustainability and a kind of desire to act on that or a passion for business and entrepreneurialism and kind of wanting to kind of carve your own path. Did, can you kind of identify where that came from, do you think? Uh, so I'm the youngest of four. Uh, so I think I had a my growing up, I was, I was conditioned to be fighting for, for airspace. But I think, uh, so the youngest of four, I was brought up in London, where I am again now. I'm a rare Londoner from London. And I was educated in London. And then I was at university outside London. Um, but I, I didn't think about sustainability um, 
at all really except when I was about 17 18 at school when there was people were talking about the ozone layer and chlorofluorocarbons I remember having quite a lot of research about that but I didn't think about it my uh, mother's a teacher and my uh, father was an entrepreneur um, uh, with an unrealistic optimism to him that I have adopted um, <laughs> I I didn't think about sustainability more than that when I was growing up Fair enough. No, I, th- I think we've often, a lot of us have got a sort of school related memory of learning about something like the ozone layer, or in my case, fossil fuels and going, oh my God, what? <laughs> yeah, this is a thing. Um, yeah, frightening. Okay, perfect. Um, and a father is an entrepreneur. So interesting. That's where you kind of saw, I suppose, that it was possible and something that you could do. Yeah, I, I definitely made the very impossible things feel like they could become real. Uh, but I don't think I internalised it at the time. I never thought of that as a path for me. Um, throughout my 20s and 30s, I did think about, oh, it would be great to start a company, but I never thought I had the right idea or could I do it without the right person? And so it always became something which was delayed or a seconds, second priority. Um, yeah. yeah, fair enough, fair enough. And so talk me through your kind of early career then in university. You studied geography, did you? Yes, I I took a gap year after my A-levels and I worked in an investment bank for nine months and then travelled for five or six. And I had planned to do economics at university, but I really didn't like working in an investment bank and decided I would change and got to university and changed to geography, which I hadn't studied for A-level. And I found a great course, super interesting. And then I came out of university and then I went to on the graduate training scheme at L'Oreal, which was a brilliant marketing experience. Not that I was particularly passionate about the product, but the learning curve was amazing, um, great autonomy and responsibility for very young people. And from there, I went to do marketing strategy at Johnson & Johnson, which is more of a global role. Um, and uh, it felt a much larger organization, but fantastic people and a great grounding actually in marketing strategy and marketing. Yeah, amazing, amazing. And what kind of prompted you? I, I, you, you sort of went on and did further study in sustainability I noticed you went back to kind of Cambridge University to the Institute of Sustainability Leadership is that right what kind of prompted you to make that pivot kind of out of marketing and in across to sustainability so after Johnson and Johnson I set up my own marketing consulting strategy and I did that for a long time around when my children were growing up so I've got three children who are now between 11 and 15 and so I hadn't mean to do that, but somebody had offered me a project and I therefore fell into marketing consulting that I then continued to do because it was interesting and flexible and I had really great clients. After about seven years of that, one of those great clients who was a manufacturer of niche plastic, highly engineered kind of widgets, um, I could see that they 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 were faced with the challenge of not being able to recycle their products. And I became interested in trying to introduce a kind of circular system. So I started researching with a circularity. I'd never heard of it before, um, not to any extent. And then I said, look, can I do a project for you on bringing circularity into your system? And and the the gentleman said to me, well, what, what training have you done? Have you done this before? What makes you qualified? And I said, well, none, I've got no, no qualifications in this. I've just got a good brain and some common sense. And it's a new area. So how, not how hard can it be, but how much expertise does one need to have? Anyway, so I was, I was pushed back to continue the marketing work. <laughs> and they brought in a lady who, uh, who had, they, who, who, she was a sustainability consultant. So I went out for her for breakfast and I said, well, what makes you a sustainability consultant? And she said, well, I, 
I did a sustainability uh, leadership course at Cambridge University, um, and it was a nine-month postgrad. And then I'm now doing work as a consultant. So I thought, all right, well, I'll do that. <laughs> so it was like deep in COVID, and I signed up for um, the postgraduate certificate in sustainable business leadership back at Cambridge University, and I did that in the evenings and online over nine months. Wow. So you were working self-employed, essentially running your own business as a marketing consultant yeah. during COVID, looking after children and studying on a postgrad course. Yes. Wow. And that's <laughs> the end of to January 2021 and coming out of the course, I thought, now, now I can't go back. Yeah. Because now I understand the extent of the challenge and the frameworks that I could use to solve, help solve part of this problem. And um, a great friend of mine who I met at business school, she sent me a message around that time saying, oh, I know you're interested in this area now, Louise. Have you heard about a climate technology fellowship? It's remote because of COVID, but it's out of Silicon Valley. It's called On Deck. I think you might like it. And it was uh, just a five minute application to just begin with. And um, I happened to get on that course and Whilst the course in Cambridge was a, a brilliant academic foundation, the Climate Technology Fellowship was real world, very practical. And um, there are about 180 people, I think, like super senior in climate tech across the world, although quite focused on West Coast. And through that, I met my co-founder, Nesta, and he um, he is um an experienced engineer in water utilities and hydropower. And about a year and a half before our meeting, he had read an article in The Guardian saying that hydropower reservoirs emit a billion tons of greenhouse gases. And he was like, what? I, how can I, I've never known this. And I've been working in this industry for 10 years, 15 years. How can I not know this? So on his side of his job, he thought, I'm going to try and work out whether we can develop a solution to process large volumes of water to extract this methane to stop it being omitted. After about a year on his journey by himself, he thought, I need a co-founder. So he entered the, the fellowship program looking for a co-founder, and I went in there looking for dramatic change. And we just happened to meet on one of the first interactions. We've gone well, but he we didn't meet in person. He was in um, the Netherlands at the time. And anyway, I'll stop there before I let you ask any more questions. <laughs> that's brilliant and how did you know I mean was it a because finding a co-founder right and 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 building a partnership and setting out on this journey together you've got to know they're the right person that you want to go on that journey with because it can be challenging right so how how did you know did you know upon the first time you spoke to him that he was the person you wanted to do something with or no the premise of this fellowship was that you offer twice as much help as the help you think you would want to take out of it and the help i could offer people was on positioning telling a story and marketing strategy which was a thing that he was finding um kind of challenging in such a difficult area so i just helped i was helping him along with other people on helping them tell their story of their business and it was a pleasure working with nesta and then after maybe a couple of weeks of a few meetings, we suggested, okay, let's do three weeks together of half days and see how that works out. And at the end of it, I think his wife said, go on, just ask her, you know, just, just ask her. <laughs> ask her out. <laughs> and uh, so it wasn't like I, I know, I'm not really that kind of person, but it was such an easy um, relationship from the start and we share nothing 
Cherry with like really nothing. We have a different background. He's a Colombian based in the Netherlands and we have a different culture and different views and I am action-packed and reactive and action-orientated and he is thoughtful and logical and kind. Like we come to everything from a different perspective and that makes it brilliant. Yeah, fantastic. Yin and yang. Love it. That's really good. (laughs) So after you died, we only met for the first time in person three months after we had founded the company in the UK. So we we set up the company in like June and we met, maybe it was actually September when our, in the first week of the Carbon 13 program, we met on the platform of King's Cross Station. How amazing. (laughs) I love that. Um, And so what, when, when the kind of the, that finished and then started Carbon 13, what was the kind of time gap there? and, And what did that look like in terms of the application process? How did you hear about Carbon 13? What, what did that part of the journey look like? Um, when I was just finishing the, my Cambridge postgrad, one of the lecturers was called Nikki D, and I saw it a little logo on the bottom of her presentation saying Carbon 13. So when they had breakout rooms, I asked her what it was about. So this is like November 2020. And she told me, and I applied by myself as an individual, and I had my interviews, and I, I didn't get on the first cohort. And actually, I was a bit crushed because I... I really felt this was my thing. Like I really felt a climate tech startup was the thing I wanted to do, but I didn't have a co-founder. And then when I met Nesta, I said, look, I haven't got on, but I think you should apply anyway for the company because I really think neither of us have got funding experience, like the mm-hmm. fundraising experience. And I think that's the bit we're missing the most amongst other things, but that could really help us. So I think you should apply. So actually we said, Lena, we'll apply together. And for Carbon 13, if you apply as a co as a pre-form team, you both have to either accept it or not accept it. You know, you can't, but they might offer one of you, but not the other kind of thing. Yeah. So we said yeah. if we both get on, we'll both take it. Love that. And just explain, because I mean obviously we both know what carbon 13 is, but there might be people watching who've, who've never ever heard of it. So are you happy to just give a bit of a overview on what carbon 13 is? Yeah, so carbon 13 is a, a venture builder designed for designed for uh, people who want to start a climate tech company or climate-focused company, but might unlike to have their co-founder already. So it it mixes people together in a kind of melting pot, gives you ample opportunity to meet everybody on your cohort with the idea that you will form a team together, develop an idea together. Most likely there'll be a technical person paired with a commercial person or maybe two two technical and one commercial, but ideally some mixture of the two. And then they help you through three phases of the program to meet a co-founder is phase one, try and develop the idea at phase two. And at the end of phase two, you pitch for some pre beginning of pre-seed money and that helps you through phase three. And the whole journey is about eight, nine months. So by the time you leave Carbon 13, you if you are successful to get through all three, three phases, then you have set up a company and received your first funding for it fabulous and so you what did you both get accepted i assume spoiler yes yeah, so we both got accepted yeah both got accepted and uh and we started last september fantastic and um, and what did that look like then from the day you first went in talk me through that kind of experience and and how it kind of formulated and shaped your idea did it change your idea much from what you went in thinking you were setting out to achieve no for the business we were setting out it didn't but really gave us I think we met lots of super interesting people which is 
never, never a waste of time. Mm. But I think the most valuable thing is it funneled us through a timeline for our first fundraising and educated particularly me on the process of the fundraising. So I have never fundraised before. I've never been exposed to VCs or grants or any of that process before. And um, I found they really kind of held my hand through that. You know, I didn't know how to do a cap table. They gave us language and education on cap tables, but every part of that fundraising so that they, you had to be ready for a particular, all these milestones had to be done by a particular deadline. And I am certain if we didn't have that rigor, we wouldn't have got there in time or even six months later. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's really, really useful. And um, how how long were you in each one of those phases? Hmm, I think the first phase is about six weeks. And if you don't find a co-founder in that time, it's like blind dating. If you don't find one, you don't you don't move on to phase two. Oh, so Nesta and I were going to, always going to go through because we already had each other. But there are a lot of people who are really awesome applicants who just hadn't find found a person. Yeah, so they had to leave the program. Oh, that's it's like it sounds like X Factor, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Knocks them out. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and um, so in that first six weeks, you obviously you already had your co-founder. So, so what did six weeks look like for you guys? Because you you weren't looking for somebody you already. So did you kind of almost have a bit of a head start and some time to start developing the idea out further? Um, I think it's a false head start if you think it's a race. So sure. it's uh, we used it like we, it wasn't that we didn't go into Carbon 13 with great with with particular expectations or with a clear strategy. Like we, we were quite, OK, let's give this a go. I thought it, I was quite excited about doing it six months, nine months earlier. Uh, so we thought, OK, let's meet interesting people. Let's see whether there might be somebody like for us. It'd be like we need somebody who's a finance person if we're going to find someone mm-hmm. We decided that our our co-founder relationship was really awesome and that we weren't quite ready to risk it with another person yet. And if we undoubtedly will require particular competencies later on, that we would bring them in. That um, I I wasn't ready. I think I felt a bit strong. I think Nesta was a bit more open-minded, but I felt quite strongly that I wasn't ready to, to change that dynamic. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, we're kind of fine to dynamic is. Yeah, and we're already working like remotely. So we are, we set up as a remote company. And and that's, that's what, you know, you don't take a more challenge, I think, than is too much for a fragile company. Yeah, no, that's totally right. Very wise. Yeah. And and then that next phase that you go into, so once you've found, you know, you've got your team together, you've decided it's just yourself and Nesta, that's middle phase then where you're kind of working that idea out and, yeah. and building it. How talk, talk me through that. What did you learn through that phase? Obviously the funding stuff, but um, you know, what else did you learn and, and how did the idea kind of come together at that point? That was a time when we were beginning to apply some more rigor. So market sizing was a new exercise to me, not just a great idea. So market sizing test validating whether customers might want this is it really a proposition that is that is going to work and through that phase two actually what's the dog coming in through that phase two you're also writing a business case so it's not like you get to the end and then you build the, the, the second phase is formulating the idea building a business case setting up your company doing a cap table as if you're going to get through optimistically so actually there's quite a lot of process that um, I focused on because I'm doing everything not technical uh, that I learned. So, 
and they had um, multiple kind of workshops in person and and remotely to help that's amazing because actually a lot of people that that found a business do so with great experience you know you know either really great experience in product and marketing technology engineering whatever it may be but if they haven't been through that journey before lack i suppose so a lot of that rigor that you learnt and a lot of that stuff i suppose can be can be the make or break right if you've got a what is it fail to plan plan to fail um yeah. fail to prepare prepare to fail um yeah I, I suppose that could really be you know the make or break in in a startup or what what you know increases the odds of you being successful ultimately yeah I think at every stage you just want to try and take out as much risk and I think for us at the fundraising part the beginning of our fundraising because it really was the beginning um it was a really helpful journey but also I felt like the of the, the four people who founded Carbon 13 they were super available to us um, really? So when I had 25 questions on not understanding the cap table, then there was always somebody to help me. Yeah, amazing. That's really good. And then that pitching process, what 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 did that look like, that third piece where you have to, to go and pitch? Um, so you pitch, it was January, and we had to pitch at the Cambridge Union. Right. And uh, it was, actually, I said, I said remotely in January, then we had to do it again in, later in the summer. But it was terrifying for me to be honest you know I think I practiced like 50 times um but a great way to try and refine the story so there was we had a lot of coaching on the story part of it the narrative how to make it feel like you were putting people in and taking them with you and for that I'm super grateful I think I would have made it very functional but they made it feel very emotional Mm. Interesting. And did you, with the live pitches, it was just sort of like a dragon's den. There was a panel. You had to stand up and speak to them all. How? Or was it? Uh, yeah, it was. It was like it was in the Cambridge Union, and we were pitching the ideas to whoever the hundred and fifty X people were in the room. Um, okay. And actually, there was no auto cue. And then we did it again the next day in the Barbican to some wow. VCs. Yeah, it was. It's they put us in quite uncomfortable situations, which have only pushed us forward. That's amazing. So I, I was picturing like maybe five or six of them at table, a hundred, a hundred people. Yeah. So there's the internal one first in Cambridge Union. So it's other other carbon thirteen people and kind of not. It's a, a gentler audience. And then the next day was to VCs in London um, at the Barbican. Wow. And what kind of challenges did you face? Were they in the moment? Were they kind of pushing back and asking questions, and like you'd see on Dragon's Den, or do you just do your pitch, you hear nothing, no feedback, and then you go sit down? We find so often with our business that we get asked fewer questions because people are more like this, what? <laughs> what, are you, what are you doing? Like when people are saying it's a solar business or it's a carbon accounting software, people understand it, it's familiar. They might have already invested in that space. But we, we mostly leave people stunned. And uh, that is a part of education. So I feel not, not worried about it at all. But second of all, it makes it challenging because people don't like to invest in areas that they don't feel comfortable having done it before. Mm-hmm. So um, I often get the what? face. <laughs> we didn't get that many questions. Often we have to plant questions because people don't know what to ask. So I suppose the biggest kind of blocker would be people's lack of education about it and it feeling like a big scary unknown rather than than anything else yes because when people think about methane emissions they're thinking about cows or they think about oil and gas and nobody is very little awareness of methane emissions from water i mean on sunday night 
there was a fantastic frozen planet, Dave Attenborough, and he talked mm. about the, um, the melting permafrost creating millions of extra reservoirs in Alaska, and that is including masses of methane that was frozen that's being emitted. And I was like jumping up for joy that this was <laughs> really, like there's no better education. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's been on Attenborough, then it's yeah. in the mainstream. Yeah. And <laughs> then everybody sits up and listens. Perfect. Mm. So talk about where Blue Methane is today. You secured the funding um, and kind of came out of the programme. What did those kind of first few months look like then in terms of going, right, OK, we're now a business properly. We've got the money. We're launching. What 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 did that bit look like? So the fundraising was a longer process than that, because although Carbon 13 were our first investor, you then need to complete your fundraising round depending on what your business needs. Okay. So we actually then complete that was like the first investor of our pre-seed. So come March or so, we then okay, now with this how much we really need to raise mm-hmm. uh, to last us a year. Um and and then we went out to VCs and and strategic angels and some foundations. Um and that was that was a journey. Like there was several, it was a very long tail to begin with. Thought, nobody's gonna nobody's gonna give us anything we're gonna do. And then we were featured. Um, in an email called Climate Raise, which is um, female founders. And I, I don't know how they found out about us, but we were featured in April. And that was it. Like, I have the floodgates opened and we were so inundated with people who were the, the biggest of the biggest VCs and investors who we'd, we're desperate to try and get in front of. And they were like saying, oh, we've heard about this. This sounds amazing. Can we speak to you? So suddenly from... It being my first raise and, and still my first raise that I'd never done and thought nobody's how hard is this going to be? How does it work? And then suddenly we, we were way oversubscribed. But um, and we said, OK, we're going to continue. To, we're going to stick to what we said we we're going to do and just take this amount of money from these people who we thought were awesome. Um, yeah. and Amazing what that little bit of PR can do. Yeah. And I suppose if you were to do that process again, would you kind of be more mindful of, of the noise around the business and the PR and being featured? in some of those things to drive that interest yeah, there's some things you just don't know until you know so i um i now recommend people on my cohort who, are, who i think are really awesome founders to get in touch with the people who have i have found have given us lots of airplay mm. having lots of people contact me gave me confidence in those conversations again so i think it was a mixture so when i realized actually we were we were a really attractive company for this kind of area and that we did deserve to be here and that we could have a massive impact and be sustainably financially. I stood taller too. And I think that it was not chicken egg, but they were both things compounded together, which made us a more attractive thing to invest in at that time. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, interesting. Okay. And so when you kind of completed that final funding round then and you had the money to, to last that first year out and, and, and get going, what, what did that look like then in earnest? You know, we've got the money, let's let's do this now. So we first we first built a, a small prototype like this size and it it was um it involved a half of the, the concept we were going to include. And we built this and we tested that at a water treatment plant who were interested in our idea. Um, and that was in April, May. Um, and then, and that went well, that we were, we were removed the amount of methane that we thought we would, um, or pretty close to it. So now we, then we started building the next size up, which is about the size of your kitchen table. And that's nice. still a tiny prototype, but now it's to scale for all the features of our design. 
And then we're testing that in the Netherlands. And, and that's just keep it in-house still. So my co-founder is now in Belgium. Um, and we're testing that in the next couple of weeks. And then we are, then we have three proof of concepts that we have confirmed. One's in Rwanda at Lake Kivu, which has a whole array of methane concentrations. Um, um, one is likely to be in the UK and one will be in Poland. So technology part. We have a completely remote team. So we are demonstrably remote and we work hard to build remote teams. So we are now nine people. So we're not just Nestor and me now. We're not all full time, but we are nine. Um, and I'm so proud of them because they are like rock stars, PhDs in greenhouse gas emissions from lakes and reservoirs. It's amazing, actually. Amazing. And how did how did you find those nine? At what point did you and Nesta realise we need to bring some more people on? And, and how did you decide who those people would be and, and where you'd go to find them? Um, often people contact us because they've heard about what we're doing because we're getting quite a lot of traction now in the, and, and airspace. And really people who are really interested in the space who might be researchers um they might approach us and say look i'm an expert in this and i've been i've been thinking about this problem even though hardly anybody else is there any way i can help um also we have before nesta i met nesta he has his own engineering consulting work and the couple people who work for him there he moved them across knowing how great they are and they're based in colombia so we our team were in colombia and poland and a couple of us in the uk uh, and Nesta's in the Netherlands, like we're everywhere. Amazing. And have you managed to all get together at any point yet? I imagine that's logistically tricky to achieve. And not yet, all together. But we, we're learning more and more how to make people feel like they're part of a of a, a real team, even though we're, not, we're sitting in different offices. So we, we do a water cooler kind of idea every once a week. We have an all hands once a week where we go through all the projects we tr- actually try. We try really hard through people telling us as well, like what they're what they're feeling, like really listening to how they're feeling about working by themselves and how we can help them not feel alone. So, what training they need, you know, maybe they need a new keyboard, but we can't see. Like we really, we are really trying hard to to build remotely. Yeah, and that's not that's not easy to do because right. we're all, I suppose, learning how to do that right, for, and have been over the last year mm-hmm. or two, how to kind of find our way in building culture and making people feel supported and looked yeah. after despite not being in front of them. So, yeah, no, that's really interesting. Okay, and so you're a team of nine now. You've you've kind of got this second prototype, this larger scale yeah. um, together that you're going to test. Um, and, and what do the plans look like moving forward? So fingers crossed those tests all go well. What what does this next phase of growth over the next sort of 12 months look like for you? Um, so there's technology innovation, which we discussed. Yeah. And then there's um, customer development. So we're not ready to sell a finished product, but we are absolutely, it is absolutely imperative that we design the product with the customer's input all the time. So making sure that we're validating the, the thing is that we're making is the thing they still want to buy. So customer development is critical. But thirdly, what we understand is that only, so whilst almost 50% of all greenhouse gases are coming, or global warming is coming from methane, less than 2% of investment is in methane abatement technology. So it's wildly underfunded. And what we recognised is that we also need financial innovation here to incentivize people to invest in this space 
We teamed up last December with an awesome t- company called Open Hydro, and together we applied for a grant to develop a kind of a financial mechanism um, to incentivize private investment in methane capture technology. So it's like it's like methane capture as a service, a bit like your Spotify. You can you, use the, listen to the music but not pay to own the thing anymore, and that's what we're developing for our technology with them and that was actually endorsed um in climate week in new york a couple of weeks ago it's it's yeah it's amazing so what does that look like on a practical level is it a bit like so it's a company it's like we set up a new business and that business is let's say called methane capture service and we sell that to the hydropower owner the hydropower owner will say look i i have a problem with my methane emissions but i don't want to pay that much money for the tech technology and i don't want to be responsible for it so it's a hybrid project so okay that's fine we will organize the investment we get third-party investments and we will take away the problem of your methane emissions by deploying our technology and out of it the revenue stream was from carbon credits and the revenue from the additional energy generated from the captured methane and that will go back to the investors so we take away your problem, hydropower owner or asset owner, and to the investors, they get the returns. So it's amazing. Yeah. So clever. It, it is. Yeah. It's, it's, been a, it's been brilliant. So we've been working with the, um, the Lab for Climate Finance and the Climate Policy Initiative to develop that. Amazing. And who are your kind of potential clients? Who, who where, where does this problem sit? Is it just hydropower yeah. or... So I probably should have started at the beginning. So the problem with methane from water, uh, of the 51 billion tonnes of CO2 a year, about 6 billion equivalent is from methane. So it's a, it's a sorry, 3, sorry, 3 billion. So that's about 6% of the problem is from methane. And they're coming mostly from three areas, reservoirs, rice cultivation, and wastewater. Okay. So knowing that, our, um, and it's not everywhere, so wastewater is geographically distributed across the world, so that's everywhere, UK anywhere. But the reservoirs, particularly the high, well, all reservoirs, but we're looking at hydropower reservoirs first because they're already connected to a grid so we can access their electricity generation facilities. They're mostly across the tropics where it's lovely and warm, lots of vegetation, um, lots of water. So where there's, and the methane in all those three places is formed from the decomposition of the organic matter at the bottom of those water sources, where oxygen levels are very low, and it comes to the top through different processes, but both in reservoirs and wastewater, um, and also rice cultivation. That's the process for the methane being produced, and so they're all anthropogenic. None of those emissions would be taking place if we hadn't built that reservoir i see so you would be approaching the hydropower facilities and yes. then engaging with them to implement yeah. the technology yeah that's right yeah. yeah exciting and have you got kind of any of those customers on board yet or is it very much because it's still at prototyping the technology are you needing to get the technology to that big enough scale to be able to actually kind of sell it i suppose um so we have um we have a hydropower partners for the pilot yeah. Um, so we have pilot customers, um, and I think we're waiting for one more. I think we're not quite ready to sell an end product yet. Um, yeah. And we we are we are big. Let me give about scale. We at a hydropower location, we're likely to be processing the equivalent of an Olympic-sized swimming pool of water 
every minute. Like this is, our technology is the size of not far off half a football pitch. Wow. This is large infrastructure technology. Um, so it's not something that happens overnight. Yeah. Yeah. And in terms of volumes of, of kind of methane capture and reduction, what, what have you got goals and targets around that? What, it, once this is up and running to its kind of optimum potential, what, what does that look like? What? So we have our, our kind of long term headset on a, a billion tons of greenhouse gases in CO2 equivalents. The, I mean, there's a, there's a billion only in reservoirs each year, but we we are also speaking to water utility companies. So we've been working really hard in hydropower. That's where our experience has been. And then knocking on the door, like all year has been way forward to saying, but we've got this problem. And also it's sitting in your postcode. Um, and so we are parallel pathing for as long as we possibly can, hydropower and wastewater. Um, and I think because we're tiny, but we have a great team, we can be as nip- we're trying to be as nimble as we can by keeping both options open. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. And mm. and so in terms of the next sort of 12 months then, and, and once the technology is all tested and ready to go, will it be another funding raise? Is that where you're looking to go next in order to then scale it out? Yeah, so for our fundraising, we, um, we are pushing quite hard on grants until we get to a point where we de-risk the technology much more. Right. And then we will um, go to another private round here. Yeah. I think that's more likely to be sometime in next year. Perfect. Cool. Well, it sounds like um, well, all being well with all the tests and things over the next sort of few months, it sounds like it could be a fantastic solution to a really big and under, under you know, what's discussed problem. <laughs> yeah, the, I think the awareness, the awareness challenge is is the largest part. Also, even within um, within the co- companies who could be our customers, um, and so not just being a technology provider, but being a a part of the, the storyteller of the educator it's i think we feel it's our responsibility as well to be to be more the latter than the former awareness of the problem helps solve the problem yeah yeah and and how much ongoing support do you get as being a sort of alumnus of carbon 13 how much do they remain in touch after you've kind of i suppose exited the venture builder and and you're out in the wide world are there regular get-togethers do you have a kind of a line of communication with them at all times for any problems you've got um yeah definitely the line of communication so there are a few people who we that both within the cohort ourselves we 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 are each other's resource and uh carbon 13 themselves have been really very available actually um we have learned the importance of advisors um through our journey so people who we can pick up the phone to and who are very experienced in our field to to be a sounding board for our decision making to challenge our thinking um and i i just think the value of a good advisory board i don't mean like a board of directors like we're tiny still so it's Mm. not it's not a legal body but working out what is that expertise that you really need and for us like somebody who's infrastructure financing, that is critical. People who understand hydropower and the global network, that's critical. Um, people who, who are in fundraising, you can say, look, do you know what? That's not a good term you're signing up to. Um, yeah, so good advisors is my advice and work hard at it consciously. 
And and you found your advisors through Carbon Thirteen or through other other means. And and if there was somebody out there that was at that early stage now and, and wanted thought, yeah, I could really benefit from some great advisors. Mm-hmm. But how do I even start going out and finding them? How what what would you suggest? <sighs> I don't think there's any magic to it. I think it's an ongoing process. Okay, so we, um, it's a bit like a dating process when you find the person. If you think, you know, I, we need this kind of expertise and I, if dreamily I'd have that person or one of these three, and then I'd say just reach out to them and and very, very low commitment can ask you this tiny question about this small thing and see whether that goes well. And then maybe suggest a 30-minute conversation another month later. And over time, then you'll realize whether it is a relationship you want to build into an advisory role. Um, I, I'd say that way. It's a long-term dating. Interesting. Yeah. And, and I think, yeah, good advice, because I think perhaps if you go in with a, can you be my advisor, please? That suddenly feels like quite a big commitment for somebody to agree to. And can I just have five minutes of your time is you're much yes. more likely to get a warm well, reception. Yeah, exactly. Can I speak to you when you're on on the way back from a school run or a, on, on your commute? Where you're no you're no burden at all and then if they're passionate then they'll want to help you because you'll be doing something awesome and they'll want to be associated with it that's what it is amazing yeah yeah that's a great advice um so I always round out by asking three quick fire questions okay um so what would be I think you might have already answered this so (laughs) what would your top piece of advice be for someone who is thinking about setting up their own business I'm not quite sure. I mean, it is so hard, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> I, can't, I can't. It is really hard. Mm. So I look at people who whose lives are simpler than mine, mm. and I think, wow, you are able to financially support just you. You haven't got husband, three children, the dog, the school. Go for it. But it's very hard to do. Like it's it's not an easy thing to be balancing and. Um, but if it doesn't work out, then you can always not do it. Just yeah. don't take on too much risk at a time. I know one of one I was thinking about is how do you fund yourself before you're funded? Well, I think you have to say, you know, how many months can I go without funding? And then I'll say, this is the line. So yeah. how yeah. long can I do this for? But if you've got a great idea, run and past people who aren't your friends and family. Everybody who you ask the questions, you will say it's a great idea. And it's probably not. Or it might be, but they're not the people to tell you. So I think never run your ideas past somebody who loves you. Yeah, good advice. And second question, which either business or sustainability role model do you wish you could have just one hour with? Oh, I think I was thinking about this. I think Ellen MacArthur. Yeah. I. It was during my postgrad at Cambridge that I became aware of her work and her influence. Then we did a dissertation around her thinking. I find it's incredible, her journey and her influence. Yeah. I'd be her. And the bra- just the, the braveness, you know, the courage to do a lot of the things that she's done is just astounding. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the way she's disseminated information about her research how open it all is how transparent how it's for everyone to to learn from Mm. yeah I think she's an inspiration amazing and what is one quick lifestyle change that you would recommend to listeners who are wanting to live more sustainably I think just eat a little bit less meat I'm not um uh yeah I said eat less meat maybe a few less avocados 
yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Louise. That's been, um, yeah fantastic and i think um i think that experience for the, anyone out there who didn't already know about carbon 13 i think sharing that journey uh, you know hopefully there'll be some people out there who now know what it is um and if you are a frustrated founder or somebody who's got an idea and you want somebody to help you build it out then yeah the applications for the next cohort are currently open um they close on the 22nd of november um so go and get an application in um and the next cohort in cambridge begins in march next year um and if anyone international is listening they are also doing their first cohort in berlin um so go and have a look on their website um but i think yeah thank you so much for sharing your experience of that and also those those bits around kind of the rigor and the process and how important that is to de-risking and kind of learning the the fundamentals of, of running a business and how important that is so thank you very much but thanks for having me on it's been great no problem take care have a really lovely day thanks bye cheers thank you for listening please follow the show to be noted of all future episodes we've also saved videos of all of our interviews over on the above and beyond youtube channel check out the show notes to find the links to this and links to all of the resources mentioned on today's show see you next week